I'm going to read the Bible in the Arabic language. قراءة من سفر التثنية لأن الرب إلهكم هو إله الآلهة ورب الأرباب الإله العظيم الجبار المهيب الذي لا يأخذ بالوجوه ولا يقبل رشوة الصانع حق اليتيم والأرملة والمحب الغريب ليعطيه طعاما ولباسا فأحب الغريبة لأنكم كنتم غرباء في أرض مصر الرب إلهك تتقي إياه تعبد وبه تلتصق وباسمه تحلف هو فخرك وهو إلهك الذي صنع معك تلك العظائم والمخاوف التي أبصرتها عيناك آمين And I am now going to read the same passage in English. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 to 21. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning again to all of you. It's really great to be back here. I was here last year, but we were still under COVID restrictions at that time. So there was limited numbers, and those of you who were here had to sit outside. So it's great to be back in your sanctuary again. I know it's not fully how we wish it would be, but uh, we are getting closer. It's also so wonderful to be here on the morning when you are welcoming Adol and Mona, who I have only met on Zoom before. So ahlam wa bikum, and welcome to the rest of the Al-Omar family as well. It's really wonderful to have you here. It's also great to hear uh, from the Al-Rubaya family, who I pray with you will be able to arrive soon. I pray that we'll get some more news at least about their arrival date. So um, I know that the Arabic speakers in the room, including Basma and George, thank you for reading Basma, have, since their time in Canada, uh, often probably been put in the situation of needing to practice a new language in public. However, this morning I want to put uh, the English speakers in the room into that position just for a moment, because I want to teach you how to say welcome in Arabic. And it's a little bit trickier maybe with your masks, but uh, I believe that you can do it. So I'm going to put the first slide up. So the next one, yeah. Great. So here you can see, welcome is written in Arabic at the top. 
Then it's transliterated into the Latin alphabet, which is the alphabet English uses in the blue, and it means welcome. And the way you say it is ahlan wa sahlan. You could see I've kind of highlighted the H's there because they're a little trickier for us. Think of it like you're blowing on something hot. Ha. So ahlan wa sahlan. I know there are some Dutch speakers in the room. Dutch speakers always want to do the ha sound. Really, Dutch really loves that sound. That is not the right sound. It's ha. Ahlan wa sahlan. So try it together. Ahlan wa sahlan. If you're really brave, you could turn to your neighbor and welcome them. Ahlan wa sahlan. Shuraikum. Masbuts? Nosenos? You're getting the thumbs up. Great work. <laughs> Great work. So I really hope that you can remember this so that after the service, you can welcome Adel and Amuna in their own language. I also hope you remember it because I'm going to be saying it a few times during this sermon and because I want to tell you a little bit about what it means. So this is the next slide. So ahlan wa sahlan is made up of two words. The first word, ahlan, comes from the root word ahl, which means family or one's own people. The second word, sahlan, comes from the root word sahl, which means easy, or in kind of more ancient times, it meant flat, level ground, ground that is easy to walk on. And so, as I have learned, when you say welcome by saying ahlan wa sahlan to someone, what you are saying to them is, you are now among family. You are among your own people, people among whom you belong. And your welcome is easy. It's not a burden. And when you're with us, you are walking on flat, level ground, welcoming ground. You're not going to get tripped up on this ground because you belong here. To me, this is beautiful for so many reasons. One of which is that I think an ahlan wa sahlan welcome reflects the welcome of God. And it's this kind of welcome, this welcome of belonging, that God is calling us to throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and especially in the passage that Vesma and I just read. Now, over the years, I've heard a lot of people be asked the question, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I have never, ever heard anyone respond with Deuteronomy. It really isn't the most interesting or inspiring book necessarily to read. It's basically a series of speeches from the prophet Moses, in Arabic, the prophet Musa. And it's speeches that Moses is giving about histories and about place names and about a lot of commands and laws, some of which don't make a lot of sense to us today or don't seem to make sense to us. But at its core, the book of Deuteronomy is the record of a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a renewal of vows and commitments and promises between God and God's people. 
Deuteronomy is a book that is reminding God's people of four things. One, where they come from, how they were slaves and foreigners in Egypt. Two, where they are going, the promised land. Three, why they're here, what their purpose on earth is. And four, who they are in relation to God, in relation to other people, and in relation to all of creation. And a big part of the answers to these four questions is God's call to his people to love God and to love others, especially others who are different from them, others who are foreigners, who are strangers, who have been displaced from their own homes and countries. Now, many of you here know Mark Glanville, who, of course, used to pastor here, and who is now a professor at Regent College in Vancouver. Mark happens to be an expert on Deuteronomy, and you might also know that he recently published a book that he co-wrote with his brother called Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics. In his book, Mark notes that the word for stranger appears 22 times in Deuteronomy. And almost all of these times, it is referring to how the people of God are, are to treat strangers. One of these pivotal passages is Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 21, which we just read, where Moses tells the people, God loves the stranger residing among you and you are to love the stranger, for you yourselves were strangers in Egypt. As Mark writes, this passage shows us a connection between God's love for his people, God's love for the stranger, and God's people's love for the stranger. And the word that Deuteronomy uses here for love was a word used more generally in the ancient Near East in the time of Moses. And it was a word that was used to express the covenant commitment between nations, actually. So when nations got together and made treaties, they actually used this language of love. So when verse 18 says that God loves the stranger, we see that God is making a covenant with the stranger, a commitment and a promise of faithfulness. And in the ancient Near East, when nations or different groups made these commitments to each other, they used the language of what Mark calls kinship. So kinship meaning family, but so much deeper than just the blood ties of family. It's, it's kinship is the sense of the deepest kind of connection and belonging that you can have with someone else. Kinship describes the kind of relationship, oh, we'll just keep going, just the kind of relationship between God and God's people. So when the word love is used here, we're meant to understand that the stranger is to be enfolded within the kinship relationship of God to God's people. The stranger doesn't stand outside of it, the stranger is within it. 
But this covenant commitment, this treaty commitment, it's not a piece of paper full of legal language that nobody understands. Instead, it is an emotional connection. It's a deep heart connection, a connection of promises, again, between God, God's people, and the stranger. To use the language of Deuteronomy 10, our mighty and awesome God binds himself to the stranger and calls us to do the same. And God knows that this binding, this promise, isn't always an easy task. The book of 2 Samuel says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, every spring, War was a continual part of life, and I think we're getting a sense of what that feels like a little bit right now, even though we're still so distant from it. But for the people of the ancient Near East, war was constant. There was constant violence, constant conflict. People were constantly being displaced from their homes and looking for refuge. And people lived in fear of one another. But in contrast to this, the people of God even while they were in the midst of war and conflict themselves, were called to a different way, a way of welcome, called to say to those displaced around them, those looking for refuge at their gates, Ahlan wa sahlan, you are now among family, and your welcome is not a burden. So, God knows, again, that this is not a simple call. But God has never promised us that his call on our lives would be simple. But he has always promised that it would be good. So as Mark Glanville writes, and this will be up on the slide, the challenge before us, above all, is a spiritual one. Scripture's call to enfold the stranger is an invitation into a knowledge of God, a theological process. And it is an invitation to know God, a spiritual process. And this theological and spiritual process of growing in knowledge of God and growing to know God more, it continues all the way through the Old Testament and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who at the center of his being was who the people of God were always called to be. Jesus, who erased the divisions between Jew and Gentile, who broke down walls of hostility, who expanded the boundaries of family and said to his disciples, you are my brothers, you are my sisters, you are my mother. Jesus, who was crucified on a cross and rose again from the dead so that the powers of evil, the powers that create war and conflict, and the powers that rip people from their homes would be defeated. And so that all of creation might be restored to new life. And while we wait for that day when Jesus comes again and we see the complete fullness of welcome and reconciliation, we work and we witness and we learn. And I think we learn not only by welcoming, but we also learn by being welcomed. And I hope that 
many of you have stories of that, of being welcomed, and I hope you tell those stories to each other. But your stories, of course, are not mine to tell. So I think the best thing that I can do right now is tell you a little bit more of my story. So my story goes back uh, several years ago across the world to the Middle East. It begins actually in Tunisia, in North Africa, where in 2011, a fruit seller named Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire, protesting a government and a police force and a system that seemed to exist only to oppress the Tunisian people. This act and his death were the spark that lit a fire that spread throughout the Middle East. People in countries across the region felt humiliated and harassed and beaten down by their governments. I know this is a feeling that the Syrians and the Iraqis in the room recognize. They felt that they were treated as less than citizens and as less than human beings. And in response, anti-government protests broke out in country after country in what we now call in English the Arab Spring. A little over one month after Muhammad the fruit seller set himself on fire, these protests hit Cairo, Egypt, where I was living. And they hit with a force that nobody, including the Egyptian government, saw coming. By that time, I had been living in the same neighborhood in Cairo for about three years. I knew a lot of my neighbors, and a lot of them knew me, and they knew that I was partly responsible for all these American and Canadian university students who kept showing up in their neighborhood every four months to study abroad in Cairo. And my neighbors had welcomed us. We were foreigners, we were strangers who barely spoke their language and were just learning to understand their culture. But they had invited us in for tea and for meals and for conversations and for dance parties. And Egyptians know how to throw a dance party. I have also learned that Syrians and Iraqis know how to throw amazing dance parties also. But my neighbors did all of this welcoming in the midst of a government that was crushing them. Because when the protests started in January 2011, the government did what authoritarian regimes do when faced with dissent. They cracked down. It's the next slide. This is a picture from Cairo at that time. Egyptian authorities beat and arrested and tortured protesters. Some of the protesters disappeared. The authorities threatened the mobile companies and got cell service cut off through most of the country. They did the same thing with the internet companies, and they shut the internet down. They instituted a military curfew so that no one except the army was allowed on the streets from 3 p.m. to 8 a.m. The police who the people saw as corrupt weapons of the government, disappeared. 
Stories began to spread about gangs of looters taking advantage of the chaos and breaking down people's doors to beat and steal from them. People couldn't call each other on our phones or we couldn't email each other to see what was true and what wasn't true. Nobody knew exactly what was happening and there was so much fear. But in the midst of this, while well, rumors spread and different groups played games with Egypt's future, my neighbors did what people in neighborhoods across Cairo were doing. They got together and they set up roadblocks, couches, tires, old chair, or, or sorry, old cars, chairs, on every street that entered our neighborhood so that nobody could come in and out without talking to them and explaining who they were to make sure that looters and gangs were not coming into our neighborhood. Despite the military curfew, they were out there night after night after night after night, all night long, and you would be surprised how cold Cairo can be in January. But they were out there protecting their families, protecting neighbors, and they were protecting us, the strangers, the foreigners in their midst. And this was no small thing, because at that time there were also rumors spreading that foreigners were spies. The Egyptian government was spreading propaganda that you couldn't trust foreigners and that they were interfering in bad ways in Egyptian politics. So having foreigners in the neighborhood was a liability. We were putting our neighbors at risk but their protection of us never wavered. Several nights into this, things began to feel safer and calmer. And my coworkers and I, two Americans, an Egyptian and me, wanted to thank our neighbors. So we boiled some water, we pulled out some tea and sugar and little plastic cups, and we walked around in the dark from roadblock to roadblock. We were a little bit of a strange sight. I think we caused some uh, laughter in a good way. But uh, we had some great conversations with our neighbors. And at the last roadblock, just before our hot water ran out, one of the men there looked at us with a little bit of puzzlement, and he asked us, what are you doing out here? Aren't you afraid? And we looked at each other, and we looked at him, and we said, well, we were afraid, but we're not now, because you're here, because you're our neighbor, and you welcomed us, and we have seen that you will protect us with the same strength that you are protecting your family. And he looked at us, and he said, Ahlan wa sahlan. To be welcomed in that way by my neighbors was not something that I earned. I mean, I'd never even met that particular man, that particular neighbor before that night. I didn't do anything to deserve that welcome. So for me, my neighbors in Cairo reflected the welcome of God. I grew in knowledge and understanding of God's love through the stranger love that was shown to me. This is part of what motivates me in the work that I do. To give even one small bit of the welcome that I was given in Egypt. 
to give even one smaller bit of the welcome that I have been given and continue to be given by God. To give of this welcome, to say ahlan wa sahlan to those around us, is to build a new community. It is to erase the walls that the world tells us we should be building, and it is to reimagine what it means to expand the boundaries of who we call family. It is to be able to turn to your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is, and say to them, your welcome is not a burden for me. And I know that for some of you out there, this is your biggest fear. That you might be or might become a burden. A burden to your spouse, to your kids, to your family, to your church, to your society. But this fear comes from a lie that comes right from the devil. The lie that the worst thing in the world would be to become dependent on others or dependent or in need of the help of strangers. But in the community called for in Deuteronomy and the community shaped by Jesus, every person is dependent on the other. The boundaries between you and the stranger are erased. There's no person helping up here and person being helped down there. Instead, you are walking on flat, level ground together. Ground where each person says to the other, I need you, and I am here when you need me. And so we learn and we work and we live into this community, shaped by our God, who says to each of you every minute of every day for the rest of your life, Ahlan wa sahlan, you are among family. Your welcome is not a burden. You can walk easy now. You belong. Amen. So we're now going to sing a song that is originally comes from the Arab church, and it is actually the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I believe we're going to sing it in English, but before we sing it, I wanted to pray the Lord's Prayer in Arabic with you. And I encourage you to pray in your own uh, heart in whatever language you would like, but I'll be praying it aloud in Arabic. And uh, I'm going to pray it the way that uh, Egyptian Christians taught me. It's a little bit different than the way Iraqis and Syrians might pray it. But before we sing, let's pray together. Abana lavi fiasamuat. Liatokodus ismak. Liati malakutik, litakin mishitik, kama fiasama, kazalek, ala lard. Khobzana kafafana atinal yom. Work for lana zanubna, kama nek for nechna naidin la mazna bin alena. Ula tilna fita griva, like a nigina nina shurir. An alek, a malek, well kawa, well magid, ilialabd. Amin.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.